Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, I want to talk to you about self-storage. Okay, for those of you who have participated in our self-storage offerings in the past, with um, Reliant Real Estate in particular, we've done some uh, joint ventures with them. You know that you can make a lot of money in this space, okay? One of our deals was not planned this way, but nearly doubled investor equity in just, just under a year. I think it was like nine, 10 months. Now, those kinds of returns are, you know, are sexy, but self-storage itself is not not sexy at all. And by the way, those, you know, past performances, not dictate, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. But the point is self-storage itself is not sexy at all, but can be very profitable. It's just, the thing is, it's boring. It's where people keep their stuff when there's no room for it in the house. But in times like these, boring isn't so bad. In fact, when it comes to business, Boring is actually a very good quality for sort of the all seasons uh, business cycle type thing, right? Self-storage facilities have historically shown resilience during economic downturns. And unlike, you know, some other real estate investments, they often experience a steady demand even in challenging economic conditions. People, you know, they downsize, they relocate, they lose their jobs, have to sell their houses, seek temporary storage solutions, stuff like that. Everyone needs self-storage, right? Whether in urban areas, whether you're living in smaller or in uh, smaller areas or suburban large areas, rural areas, whether it's for personal use, business use. And from the standpoint of the owner of these facilities, self-storage takes advantage of one of the major characteristics of mankind, and that is inertia, right? Inertia. In other words, do you have stuff in storage? I do. How badly do I want to move that stuff to another storage facility if someone charges me an extra $10 per month to keep it there? Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough, right? That is inertia. I just don't want to do it. And that's why those rents keep creeping up over time without losing much money in the way of occupancy. It's a great business model if done well, if it's executed well. Now, Reliant Real Estate is uh, is a you know one of the top the nation's top operators in this space. And it's done it for several years, uh, and although I am not partnering with them on their current fund, which is Reliant Fund Four, you can find that at ReliantFund4.com. I am investing in it, and I'm promoting it because I think it represents a really good opportunity with minimal risk. Now, this week. 
on Wealth Formula Podcast. I just want to make sure I got Chris Benson on before the current fund ends. And I think it's supposed to end uh, sometime in the next few weeks. So there is an opportunity there if you want to, to deploy some capital. They have a great, uh, great structure there. Even have a 9% preferred return. But before you do any of that, I wanted to make sure you heard from Chris Benson. And he is my guest on this uh, week's episode of uh, Wealth Formula Podcast. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer of Reliant Real Estate. And we'll have that conversation right after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Chris Banson. Chris is the chief investment officer of a, of a really strong partner of Wealth Formula, uh, Reliant uh, Real Estate Management, uh, who is in the business of self-storage. Uh, Chris, welcome back. I think you've been on the show before, but uh, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. Appreciate it, Buck. Thank you. You know, I think it's a good time to sort of review this asset class because I think, uh, you know, this is a, something that, um, you know, I think is always kind of lurking out there. It's not sexy. It is not something that people get super excited about. But when you put it in the context of what it is, you just realize it ain't going anywhere and it's probably worthwhile to look into investing in it right? Self-storage. So tell us a little bit the story of self-storage as you see it. Yeah, it's a fair point. Nobody gets super pumped about uh, self-storage. We joke a lot. It's a metal box on a cement pad, right? So, you know, it's not that trophy asset in downtown municipality that that everybody feels good about owning. Um, but to your point, it's it's just been one of those asset classes that has just bumped along forever. I think the attractiveness that most people see with the asset class really has been its recession resiliency. Um, you know, when people ask us, Buck, like, hey, why self-storage? I think there's always three things that we point to um, that are sort of the foundations of the why behind investing in self-storage. And the first one I already touched on is you know, through our last two economic cycles, both COVID, um, the COVID cycle and the GFC before that, self-storage outperformed all other major asset classes, apartments, you know, retail, office, industrial. Um, and so that really brought us to the forefront after the GSC. Like people really started saying, oh, wow, this self-storage thing is a real asset class. And before that, it was very niche um, the other piece is historically over the last 28 years, storage has done just under 18% a year, which is pretty incredible um, when you yeah. think about, you know, what we've seen in 20 years. So it's had this really good historical run. And then in these downturn markets has also been really strong. And I think that's what draws most people to it is it's, 
it's very sticky. So are you, uh, so what you're saying is that maybe it wasn't drawing, um, as much institutional or large, you know, big money, uh, attention until recently is, is that right? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, call it the last, mm, probably seven, five to eight years, it's become much more on the forefront of institutional investors. I would consider us, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote real asset class in the, yeah. in the real estate space now where Buck, you know, like multifamily and retail office industrial have always kind of been the core for yeah. Yeah. Of, of real estate. And we were always very niche. And then after the GFC, people saw how the asset class performed and there was a lot more interest from, from some of the institutional investors, um, you know, as the asset class has matured. When you think about self storage, I think like this is a, um, you know, it's an area that I think a lot of us can just relate to and understand why there may be resilience in good times and bad times and pretty much any time. Right. I mean, whether you're downsizing whether you're whether you're unemployed you know getting kicked out of your your house or you're just moving whatever you just got stuff you got stuff that has to go somewhere and it sits there and it's very it's a real pain in the butt to move it i mean i'm talking obviously mm -hmm. you can you can, you can hear that i've dealt with self storage as a consumer <laughs> How many <laughs> units do you have right now, Buck? <laughs> well, I mean, just, you mean in terms of my own personal use? Yeah. Well, now I think I'm only down to one, but, you know, I, yeah, move, I moved several times in the last few years and it, you know, there was stuff, stuff sitting there for probably seven years. And in the meantime, the story, and, and again, this is funny to talk about because, you know, we've been partners with uh, Reliant and that kind of thing. And we've seen this from the other side. But in the meantime, the uh, self-storage operator can slowly, not so slowly, I should say, raise those, raise those rents uh, and know that it is going to take a lot for it to become so painful that you move yourself out. <laughs> but isn't that at the, at the core of the business, that that is kind of what happens, isn't it? Because if you look at if you look at the um, the rate of increases in rents for self storage, it is a lot higher, and it's these are not like yearly or you know multiple year uh, leases. I mean, so to talk a little bit about that because I think it helps to illustrate the um, you know the inertia that you're using to to actually profit. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, I think the first thing that you hit on is sort of the demand drivers behind storage. In America, people love stuff and they don't get rid of it, right? That's that's kind of the bottom line. And, and that's true in good economic times or in bad economic times. We kind of joke, you know, we catch them on the way up and we catch them on the way down. There's a, a category buck that we use, we, we call it the four Ds of self-storage demand. And it's death, dislocation, downsize, and divorce. And so if those things are happening in your life, generally you are a consumer of self-storage. And, you know, in a downturn, people are getting downsized and they're moving and things are happening, which is why the asset class has been very sticky. And to your point, they're 30-day leases. So theoretically, we could raise rents every month. We, we wouldn't have any customers, but 
you know, it's different than like office where you're signed up for a five-year lease or apartments where it's a 12-month lease. So it gives us a lot of flexibility in our pricing and that can be good and bad, right? I mean, you know, just as quickly rates can go up, they can also go down because sure. they're not locking somebody in. Um, but the the interesting part about storage and why I think it's been so successful is it comes down to, like you said, once people are in, they're generally sticky because no one's going to take a weekend and go rent a U-Haul truck for, you know, if you're paying a hundred bucks a month and we raise your rent 6%, that sounds like a lot, but that's $6 a month or $72 a year. Most people aren't going to do anything. You know, they're going to say, yeah, yeah whatever. Um, it's not going to make sense. So what happens is even, and, and I'll use 2022 as an example, um, we're, we're down rental rate wise about 20% year over year from 22 to 23. So rental rates are down and the demand for the asset class is down. I would say primarily because housing is down, the transactions, the number of houses being sold is less. But what's interesting is if you look at the, the public REITs, for example, their revenues, same store revenues are up. And so you ask like, well, how can that be? How can rates be down, but revenues in the stores are up? And the answer is because of that pricing increase that you're talking about. Right. Most of the time, our tenants are carrying the burden of that revenue growth. The, the revenue growth is coming from the in-place tenants versus new tenants coming in. So even in a market where rates are declining, the tenants are continually seeing that tick, that tick up in rental rates, which gives you that long-term revenue growth. So that's kind of the secret sauce behind the asset class. It's why it's been so successful historically and, and arguably what we think, what, what will drive that demand moving forward as well. Um, Reliant is sort of a, a vertically integrated uh, and um, you want to talk a little bit about that and how that works. Cause I do think it is, of, uh, uh, it's different. And I think it probably accounts for a lot of uh, the success that you guys have had. Yeah. I, at, at its purest level, vertically integrated just means we're managing the stuff that we're buying. So it's a, an employee of Reliant who's behind the desk at every one of our storage facilities. Um, and, you know, what it, what it ultimately does is we care more. Yeah. So yeah. You know, when, right. you have a third part, when you have a third party manager, I, I don't mean to say they don't care. They care, but they don't care as much as we care. Um, and so uh, I think it gives us the the flexibility to be very nimble in the marketplace and make changes quickly. Um, and because we can control all things from how we're digitally marketing to, you know, the, the goods that we're placing on the walls to sell based on how they're performing, it allows us to be very nimble. Um, but what I would say about that buck too is it, it is evolving. What that management looks like is evolving as technology evolves. Um, right now, one of the things that we're beta testing is what we would call a virtual counter where, you know, Buck, typically, you know, you walk in a storage facility, there's a guy or gal behind the desk or a couple of them. And we're, we're testing a virtual model where you walk through the door and you're interacting with a live person just through a screen. And we've, we have nine of our, we have 97 properties right now. Nine of our 97 are running that platform. Um, with the hopes to see if we can supplement technology and reduce some of our payroll costs. Yeah. And so I think when we're vertically integrated like that, we can we can make changes like that quickly um, and not rely on other people to make that decision for us. And you know, I think one of the keys uh, 
to this to me at least is that self-storage is really i mean the, the the driver is a business an underlying thing here is that you've got a business you're, you're trying to get customers right i mean it's it, it is real estate of course but it's as much a retail business almost just like uh, anything else and that's the importance of as you said caring about how uh, things turn out how has uh, this, I guess, a run up in rates and inflation and everything that we have experienced in the last 24 months or so, 18 to 24 months, whatever, how has that affected this marketplace? And, and you know, obviously we have a pretty good sense. We got, we got kind of, you know, really hurt in, in the multifamily space. But the flip side of that is, I, I mean, I think we we're seeing 2024 as a real potential buying opportunity you know self-storage seems to have not really had any you know severe downfalls per se it's 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 always kind of trucking along is that about what's kind of the standard you know thing that's happening right now or tell me what's going on now yeah i mean i i would think or i would say that the biggest impact similar to what you touched on with multifamily, has been the impact of rising interest rates and that's that's impacted us too um, you know, the, the cost of our, our debt service, um, if we have to go out and get a loan today is much higher than it was, you know, 18 months ago, as the Fed has continued to raise rates. Um, I think, you know, from a demand side of things, I, I just touched on it. But, you know, think of what's happening in the world right now, the number of how, new housing transactions, people are not selling their houses, they're not moving, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's expensive to buy a new house. And if I sell mine, even if I make money on it, I got to go put it into something else. So they're just hanging on. Right. So housing transactions have fallen off the face of the earth, which, you know, storage, depending on the market you're in, storage is a big um, or moving is a big demand driver for self-storage. So we've definitely seen sort of a plateau of kind of rates and occupancy through 2023. Like 2021 and the beginning of 2022 were this huge growth and then it dipped and now we've sort of plateaued. So I, like you think, you know, towards the end of 24, people are just going to normalize, right? Interest rates are what they are. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to buy and sell houses at seven and 8% um, because that's where we're going to be. I don't think we're going to see the Fed cut rates hugely in 24. Um, and so I think that just sort of normalizes and there'll be some pent up demand there. Yeah. Um, but time, I think time will tell. But the other piece, Buck, that, you know, the last 18 months has impacted values um, where if we were to go sell today, um, there are certain instances where there's still st very strong demand. But I think values between what buyers and sellers want to pay right now, there's still a gap. Um, yeah, and, that know, seems to be a sort of across the board, you know, an, an ongoing issue just in terms of real estate which is this, um, this gap between the expectation of what sellers want to sell for because they're used to selling for more and sure. the realities of, of compressed cap rates uh, or, you know, the uh, not compressed cap rates, but the, the decompressed cap rates because, you know, the reality of debt, right? You, you, debt really is going to dictate what these cap, capitalization rates are. So in, in, in um, self-storage, you know, in, in uh, tell, tell us a little bit how debt works in self-storage because it's different. I mean, we, we're typically dealing with, you know, big, you know, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae type, you know, non-recourse, you know, debt and that kind of thing. These are, 
these are different. These are uh, different types of loans. And tell us about what that market is like and how that in particular has been affected and how you've been able to navigate that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, the the biggest difference is there's there's none of that institutional debt to go get right. So mm-hmm. with projects that we're buying, generally we're working with smaller local regional banks. Um, sometimes sometimes some large banks, and we do larger debt portfolios. But typically we're financing deal by deal um, with a smaller local lender. Um, and you know what I would say if you had asked eighteen months ago, Buck. Typically, we're trying to target about a sixty-five percent loan to value. Um, and today, that number, what's really shifted is two things: the pricing is higher, so interest rates are certainly higher, which I think everyone would expect. Um, and then the other thing is lenders have pulled back very much on the amount of debt they're willing to lend. So, in our current fund right now our loan to value is just over 53%. Uh-huh. So typically we would take a little bit more debt than that. And the lenders have become much more conservative. Uh, now the upside to that is there's more safety in yeah, the deal because right? sure. you got more equity in every uh-huh. deal. Um, but w- how we've navigated that, um, like in our most recent fund, our last two closings, we've seen a pretty strong appetite for seller financing where you're going to the seller and saying, Hey, you want this purchase price, there's no way we can get there. But if you can finance 60% of the deal at this interest rate, then the math starts to make sense. And and we've had uh, success with that because, you know, Buck, for the seller, it's kind of nice. It, it helps defer their tax yep. liability yep. on the profits. And then they have a coupon that they're clipping, you know, moving forward and the collateral is their project. So if we don't pay them, they just take their own deal back. Yeah. So that's been a, a successful strategy to date. We'll, we'll see how things kind of play out as we go into 24. How much of the acquisitions that you have, I mean, I, you know, it sounds like obviously if you've got people who are doing seller financing, these sound like maybe they're mom and pops, uh, that kind of thing. But is this still a, an area where there's, um, you know, a significant mom and pop, uh, presence there? Like, I mean, multifamily, like, you know, you look at like something like DFW that has been, you know, enormous uh, market for the last 20 years, the growth has been crazy there. Yeah. It used to be mom and pops. Those mom pops took their $7 million properties and sold them for 35 million in the last few years. Uh, is so what uh, is is that a thing still in self storage the mom and pop thing yeah very much so uh, the market is still very fragmented relative to multifamily right if you mm-hmm. pick up multifamily which is a much more institutionalized asset class so the data is wishy washy you can't really get a hard handle on it but somewhere between 30 and 35% of the market is owned by the five publicly traded REITs right the big institutional players and then there's another 20% that's owned by groups like us. Mm-hmm. We would be considered like a regional operator. Reliant is the 17th largest operator in the U.S., right? Just to mm-hmm. kind of give you a sense of the scale. But then there's another 50% that the, the statistic I like best is 50% of the square footage in the U.S. is owned by operators who own five or less facilities. So that's what we would consider a mom and pop. And so, Buck, what that provides opportunities for a group like us is a roll-up strategy or consolidation where we're, you know, we're buying the smaller mom and pops, rolling them up into a larger portfolio. And as we started the conversation, there's institutional investors who are looking to deploy larger checks and need that portfolio level transaction to do it. So still 
a lot of fragmentation in the space. So what you've got is in your model too, like effectively, it's almost like a, 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 a roll up model, right? Roll up private equity model where like, you know, you buy a bunch of small businesses and then roll them up and you create efficiencies and put it under one umbrella and you sell it for a, a bigger multiple. Is That's effectively what you're doing in these funds. Yeah. Think, think of it this way in institutional money. You know, if, if I'm a, a pension fund or an endowment or, you know, a foundation and I have a billion dollars that I'm trying to put to work and sell storage, they, they decide that the asset class is right. Well, they, they can't go out and build their own portfolio. It will take too long and they don't have the manpower to do it. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to find portfolios that they can deploy a big check size. And historically, at least we'll see how it plays out in the future. They've paid a premium for those larger deals because there aren't many of them out there. And so we will they we want you to manage them, Chris. We they'll they'll want Reliant to continue managing them, presume. In right? some cases, yes. Um, there are some situations where you know they'll partner with like one of the REITs and they'll be the equity backing and bring them in uh, third party management. Um, but we have certainly had institutional capital come in and then retain Reliant on the management side, which works out great for everybody. Yeah, interesting. Tell us a little bit. Um, I guess about the current fund that you have uh, right now, how, what's in there? Um, how is it structured? All that we've, you know, obviously been promoting it a little bit on our end because I do think it's a, uh, and, and it, it's a very compelling play right now. In, in my opinion, given the fact, as you've pointed out, we've talked, we're talking about low leverage. We're talking about is you can get get to a nine percent pref um, and all these kinds of things uh, in in an asset class that is traditionally extremely uh, stable. So maybe um, maybe you can add sort of uh, your your perspective on on that fund. What is it called? Tell yeah. us uh, that. Yeah, yeah. Reliant Self Storage Fund Four. So Buck, we used to we used to syndicate individual deals, um, and then in 2019 we started launching uh, individual funds. So. You know, for your listeners, just think of like a mutual fund versus yeah. a stock. Let me stop you there for one second, because just as a reminder, we did, uh, I think, three, four uh, deals together, uh, Reliant and, and Wealth Formula as a credit investor group. And I, I I don't think we hit anything below 30% annualized return. We had one where we literally doubled within nine months. So this has been a very good ride for our investors, by the way. So, well, I, anyway, the, the fund is great. I, I, I would love to go back to some of those individual things too, but I wanted to give some context so people understand why I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for what you're doing right now. But go ahead. Uh, what are you doing now? Yeah, so the, uh, we're on our fourth fund and you know, the idea behind the fund is just to provide some more diversification for investors. They go in and, you know, they have ownership in the fund, which right now we have nine properties in the fund across four states, um, mostly here in the southeast. And, um, you know, what what I like about the fund is what you had touched on is we're, we're delivering kind of or projecting to deliver mid teens type of returns with debt that's at 53% loan to value. So pretty conservative on the debt side with still pretty decent returns. And if if anything comes back to us in the marketplace, you know, we project it to be a six year hold. So it's a pretty long window. Mm -hmm. And if debt comes back to us in the in the marketplace, either, you know, interest rates come down a little bit or lenders are willing to lend a little bit more, 
gives us a really nice opportunity to refinance, return some of the capital to investors and really cash flow well. And although we don't project that in the fund, it, it we're in a nice position to do that. So, you know, I, I think it's it's hard, Buck, and I'm sure you hear this too, where people are just asking, you know, is now the right time? Um, and the answer is, I don't know. You know, we, we never know where the bottom is. Um, and our, our best course of action has always been, you know, invest on, make good decisions today on the information we have and try to be conservative in our underwriting. And, you know, typically that plays out well. Timing the market has been very challenging. Uh, if you look at the data in the last 20 years, either in the equities market or real estate, it's really hard to know, all right, now's the time to pull the trigger. So Yogi yeah, Berra said, many, it's, uh, Yogi Berra said uh, it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, but well said. but the, the the point but i think the thing that to, to understand here which i think makes this appealing in my opinion is this is an area without a lot of volatility to begin with i mean it's just there's just not a lot of vol volatility it's boring from soup to nuts you know it's like you've got you don't have a lot of um a movement in terms of you know rock bottoms or you know whatever uh, it, it has been a space that has been very, very stable. And, you know, to your point about rates, the one thing that people forget, and I think is, is worth noting, is that the, the, the number of people who've made money, a lot more money than they would have expected because they bought when rates were high and then rates mm -hmm. went back down uh, is... Enormous. I mean, you talk to anybody who's been, you know, investing in real estate for 20, 30 years, they'll tell you the times when they made the most amount of money is when they, they bought in a high rate environment and then things went, you know, to a low rate environment. So the, there's a, there's a certain element of buying within that effectively you're buying low leverage. Sure. Which is safe because you're buying in a high interest environment and you're still projecting mid-teens, you're giving a pref of 9%, which basically, I mean, it's not a guarantee by any means, but it, it, sure. it is a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very healthy prep pref in a very stable space that if you, if you just imagine for a moment, like every economist and their mother is predicting a turnaround in rates over the next, you know, 18 months, you know, 12 to 24 months, let's say, that turns into something potentially really, you know, not boring anymore. You know, that, uh, I mean, who's to say like mid-teens are not exactly boring returns, but I mean, when you, we're kind of spoiled, right? We're kind of spoiled. And, and so so to that extent, this could quickly turn around and, you know, if, if rates come down a little bit, really surprise people. So, so it's a win and potentially bigger win. Yeah, I think Buck, it, it, it's hard, right, as investors too, and, and you know this and probably many of your listeners, we've experienced the last 10 years, everything's just gone up, right? Yeah. And, and we've yeah. had some really outsized returns. And and I think we're, you know, it's a much easier market to do that when money is free. And now money is not free. And so there's going to be, I think, an adjustment. And um, I think we all have to reset our expectations, which is, is part of it. Um, and then I think, like you said, you, you buy when it's stormy, right? Like right. When no one wants to buy is when you want to be out there transacting because one, your competition is less and two, everything's cyclical. It's scary now, but 
you know, two years from now, is it still scary? Mm-hmm. Probably not. You know, if you look at the historical cycles of of our economy in the last 50 years, you know, you kind of have these 18 month, 24 month type bumps and then things start to come back. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, like you, think that everything is cyclical. And even in these downturns, when you're buying good deals, um, when the market comes back, usually you benefit the most from it. Yeah, it's usually it's usually that time when people don't have the appetite. When you, in hindsight, do you look back and say, gosh, I wish we'd bought. I mean, I I was talking to one of my uh, multifamily partners on this uh, from uh, CAF. And, you know, he he brought up an interesting idea. And I think it's probably probably true that it, you know, that we're, we're kind of entering this period that resembles 2012 because we've we've experienced significant distress, you know, on, on multifamily and and certainly like a lot of the real estate space has, even if, even as if it hasn't felt like 2008, 2009, uh, because the, because there wasn't as much, uh, maybe carnage on wall street. There was certainly was in the, in the real estate market and, and still there's fallout from that. But he, he put the parallel out there to 2012 when it looked like, well, gosh, you know, I mean, maybe it's a good time to buy now but a lot of people were too scared to do it and then in hindsight you know, this is a time to time if you bought back then you're making money hand over fist well and buck and credit markets tighten right, right. so it's harder to do it right lenders don't want to lend right and that's where we're at today right is lenders have pulled back they're very conservative even with you know good balance sheet buyers um but the credit markets have tightened so there's less people buying and and like you said it's you know, I mean, Warren Buffett says it, right? You know, you you, you buy when everybody else is afraid. And usually right. that turns out in the long term. I, you know what it is, Buck, too, and you probably have good perspective on this, is I think people, we think in too short of windows. You know, our, our wealth and wealth creation is sort of a forever game, right? The horizon is yep. your whole life. Mm. And if you can think with longer term goals, you know, generally, I like the quote, everything's a good deal in 20 years in real estate, right? I mean, I'm 43. Anything I bought when I was 23, it's worth a lot more today. And that could right. be any asset class. Right. And yeah. so I think that's part of it, too, is just letting time do its thing as long as you're making good decisions on the front end. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, again, going back to uh, this fund, which, by the way, people can learn more about that. Uh, I think we have ReliantFund4.com. Uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can spell that out. You can put the number there, whatever you want. Reliantfund4.com. Um, and check out the webinar that we did with uh, with uh, Chris and, and, the, and the team over there. Again, this is a, you know, a, a very reasonable place to, uh, to, to deploy. And to certainly consider um, talking to Chris about this more. I mean, again, it is like, you know, Right now, you know, nine percent with potential significant upside on top of that is is a very reasonable uh, consideration in my view, given given where we are, given the track record of Reliant, given the track record of of um, you know the space. By the way, if you want to talk about the track record of Reliant, I don't think we even talked about that because that's that's kind of a pretty impressive thing too. We we I mentioned what we did together, which is you know I don't yeah. know what those numbers were, but they were stupid numbers, but. Uh, go on. Yeah, now. we've had mm-hmm. we've had a good run, Buck. I mean, it, it's always hard too, right? What I, I just said, like, hey, we have to re- we have to recalibrate what we think good returns are. But 
Reliant has had a lot of success in taking deals full cycle. Uh, we've taken 38 deals full cycle. Most importantly, have never lost investor principal. Um, but our average equity multiple on those 30, um, 38 deals is just over two and a half. So if you had invested 100 grand, basically returned 2.57 at the project level um, in just over three years. So it was a really, really good time. Um, and, and you know, if you were looking at our deck right now, you'd see a disclaimer on the bottom that says, you know, previous results don't mean that that's what we're going to see in the future. But it, I think it speaks to one, the asset class and two, the team, right? We, we have a team that is is intimately familiar with the asset class and been doing it a long time. And so both us and our investors have been the beneficiary of that. And, and I still think there's value in the market, but you know, I think of those numbers, like you said, stupid numbers, like those are triple and home run kind of numbers. I think there's a probably well, you never project those, cycle. right? You never project yeah, those. Fair. And if you end up, Hey, listen, if all of a sudden rates end up going down to, you know, the mortgage rates end up going down, you know, sub four, then the next thing you know, you are, you are in stupid number land again. You know, it, it's, yeah, it, it just sure. does become that. It's, you can't predict that. You never should invest based on that, but it, it, it is worthwhile at least mentioning. So, but yeah, um, sure. Chris, uh, it's been great having you on the show again, uh, reliantfund4.com. Anything else uh, worth mentioning before we cut out here? No, I think that's a, I think we're just at, to to wrap up, we're at an interesting time in the cycle. And whether you're looking at us or any other asset class, I think you just got to think long term. And if it's scary now, it's probably going to be a benefit in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. We'll uh, love to have you on again soon. All right. My pleasure. Thanks, Buck. Be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, again, lots of opportunities coming up this year. So, you know, if self-storage is not your cup of tea, that's cool. But I want to make sure that uh, we had an opportunity to at least have uh, Chris Benson on to, to talk about it as this fund itself is closing in probably just a few weeks. So... Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you've at least learned about something, whether or not you invest completely up to you. I also want to remind you before we leave, this is another uh, year in which we have this other podcast called Sapio with Buck Joffrey. And as uh, the years go by, you may need that podcast more and more because it really focuses in on longevity and health. There's some wisdom in there as well, but right now we're going heavy longevity and health. Uh, but that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. 
Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.